Good morning and welcome to Chanel. We are glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, we know that this is the summer. We know that people are traveling. The Kittingers, we've traveled a little bit ourselves, probably will travel a little bit uh, in the next month or so. But I thought about what's a way to start a sermon. We're in Numbers chapter 13 this morning that talks about journeying, that talks about maybe vacationing. Who could I go to in my depth of knowledge that represents the, the best traveler in the world? And I decided to go to Clark Griswold. Um, we're doing this, so buckle up. Uh, I, I thought this would be a fun clip to start talking about what it's like to, to maybe journey when things aren't going the way that you'd like them to. Let's play that clip, Miles. Dad, I haven't seen a car for an hour. Oh, shut up, Audrey. You don't think Dad knows where he's going. Thank you, Russ. You're lost. Ma, I saw some detour signs. I didn't see any. I saw them when you and Mom were trying to fold the map. Audrey, when they close the road, they put up big signs, like this one. Check under the hood. Hey, Dad, you must have jumped this thing about 50 yards. Ah, it's nothing to be proud of, Rusty. 50 yards. <laughs> Alan! Alan! Get me out of here! So, thank you for humoring me with that. I love that movie. I love all of the, the Clark Griswold adventures for a lot of different reasons. But one is because often when they start on their vacation, when they start on their journey, things take a, a turn south. Things don't always go the way that they want them to. As you can see in that video, they were lost. Uh, my favorite line in that was, it's not a great thing to be proud of. And he just says, 50 yards. Like he's proud of himself for that. But this morning we're in Numbers, and in Hebrew, the, the word for Numbers is Bedmedar, which translates to into the wilderness. Now, the Greek translates that to Numbers, which is why we get that title in our English Bibles. But in the Hebrew, it means in the wilderness. Numbers picks up where Exodus leaves and kind of continues on through Leviticus. And, and Numbers finds itself with the Israelites trying to figure out who they are, but specifically where they're going. Now, it's called Numbers in Greek because the first several chapters is just a census of all the tribes. They're trying to figure out how many people are actually traveling along with them on this journey. And in chapter 12, which is right before chapter 13, uh, things are going south for Moses. Aaron and Miriam start to speak out against Moses, and specifically who he's married. And Miriam is punished, and then she's exiled for seven days. And then we get to this point in chapter 13 where Moses is like, okay, God is now telling us that we can move. Numbers 13, verses 1 through 3 reads, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So we're getting 12 different individuals from the 12 tribes of Israel. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. 
Now, there are a couple people that when you look at these first three verses, they hint towards this is when things aren't going to go the way that Moses wants them to, because Moses chooses these individuals. It's not God that says, pick these particular individuals, but Moses is going to choose the 12 to go into this land. And it's likely that Moses just looked around and said, okay, these are the 12 people that are capable physically of this type of journey. And so regardless of that, Moses takes a little bit of a leadership place, picks these 12 individuals, and then sets them on their way. And we get the the 12 individuals listed in those next three verses, but it picks up again in verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. So Moses is already telling us a little bit about why we're doing this. This is an exploratory mission. We need to figure out what the land is like, but also who's there. Who's already in the land? And Moses continues, what kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the fresh, ripe grapes. So we know when this is. This is late summer. This is going to be when these fruits are in bloom. Like We, we understand the timeline of this. But I want you just for a moment to pause where we are in the story and think about when you heard the story when you were a kid. Likely there's a flannel graph, right? You got the little felt board stuff like that. But when, you, when I see this and visualize this story from my, my childlike perspective, I see like untouched land. I see rolling hills. I see massive grapes. I see uh, pomegranates and figs because I read ahead. Um, I was fun as a kid too. Um, but you see this land that is not inhabited. But if we look at the details in the story, that's not what's really going on. The the land that Moses is about to send these 12 people into is land that already has people in it. We overlook that story a lot, especially when we tell these stories to kids. It's way more fun to say, we've got these 12 boys, and they're going into the land, and they're going to explore what God has created. But this is a spy mission. There are people that are living there, that are existing there, that have already built up cities and communities there. And so Moses is actually sending them into this almost like urban mission field of communities that are already developed and created. And so he says, what kind of land do they live in? He knows that there are people there. Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? You don't talk about towns unless you know that there are towns. If Moses references towns and cities and fortified walls and and he didn't believe that there would be, that's a weird thing to say, and it's kind of confusing. But Moses knows that this land is already inhabited, that there are people there. But again, as kids, what we're often told is that no one's there. It's an empty land for the Israelites taking. Verse 21, So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zen as far as Rehob toward Labo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Haman, Shishai, and Talmah, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Now, the descendants of Anak is super interesting, probably just to me. But I'm doing the sermon, so I'm going to tell you about it. Anak is where we get these, this idea of giants in the Bible. 
We, we see this in two different places in Scripture, particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Uh, we've got a reference to that. Let's go to the next slide, Miles. Thank you. Uh, the Amites used to live there, a people strong and numerous, as tall as the Anakites. Like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephites, but the Moabites called them Emites. So you get this quick reference in Deuteronomy chapter 2, but you see this detail that they are tall individuals. There's another reference that we see in Joshua chapter 11. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debar, and Anab, from the hill country of Judah, and from the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Goth, and Ashdod did any survive. But it's important there to note that some did survive. Now, the Anakites are actually going to be descendants. The, the Philistines, excuse me, are actually descendants of the Anakites. And we, we probably, I was going to say your favorite Philistine, but hopefully Goliath wasn't your favorite Philistine. Um, rooting for the wrong team there. But the, the Philistines are going to be descendants of the Anakites. And they're going to be known as people who are tall. Uh, Anak, Anak actually means long-necked or tall. And our historical depictions of these individuals, we've got one picture here, they wore these tall headdresses. Um, often when they went to battle, they would wear these tall head things. There's one more picture too. Even in uh, the, the depictions of these individuals, they wore these huge things on their heads, which gave the perception that they were tall, that they were larger than life. Again, referencing Goliath. Goliath is a descendant of the Anakites. And so when the, these individuals, these young men that Moses picks to go into the land, they already have these preconceived notions of fear, of things holding them back. They've heard about the Anakites. They know how big they are. They know that they're tall, that they're larger than life individuals. And, and I point that out to say they are already entering into this journey with fear with this belief that they can't do it. I mentioned a few weeks ago that the, the kids just have had some car problems, and, and I told you last week about the transmission that went out. I knew when I left Madisonville that my car had transmission issues, and I still said, Godspeed, soldier. And when I, like, I just went for it, right? If you've ever started a journey knowing that things could go south, you're already kind of defeated out of the gate. In my heart, I knew I was not making it back to Little Rock in that Nissan Rogue, but I still went for it. And I tell that because that's what these guys are entering into this with. They already believe that what they are approaching and what they will encounter is bigger than them. Dare I say that they thought it was bigger than God to deliver for them. So in verse 23, the story continues. When they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. Now, we get a lot of biblical references here just in one quick verse. And likely when you were told this story as a kid, you saw this image that we've got here of two individuals carrying this large cluster of grapes. It's bigger than them. There's two men have to carry this vine because it's so big. And so we, we understand that grapes represent a lot to the people of Israel. Grapes often symbolize abundance and life. 
And later on, as Christians, when we take communion, it represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. It has a lot of symbolism, but so do these other elements as well. Later on, the, the pomegranate is going to be a major symbol of the temple. When they start building things, let's go to the next slide, Miles. When they start building things, they start putting pomegranates on things because it represents something to them. But also the fig tree. We're starting to see some elements of the past as well. Because the, the reference to the fig would have reminded them of the stories they'd heard about Adam and Eve, who in, in their shame covered themselves up with fig leaves. And think about that for just a moment. That the land that they are entering into is a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The land that was to deliver them, the same way that God was providing for Adam and Eve, this is what they were walking into. And I would argue that the story in Numbers 13 is like, which, which way are you going to choose this time? God is again giving you a path to something better to a life better than you could ever imagine. But which way will you choose? So in verse 26, let's go to 24 and 25. Um, that place was called the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. We get 40, 7, 3. We get a lot of holy numbers. 40 is a holy number. They were likely there around 40 days, but we get this reference to the holy number there to kind of emphasize that God has blessed this journey. But they come back. It says, They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. Pause right there. Because this is where we like to kind of stop reading, right? If, if we'd never heard this story before, if we'd never seen this story on a flannel board, if we'd never heard our VBS teachers tell us this, we would want the story to stop right here. God commanded that Moses pick 12 individuals to go into this land, to survey it, to see what they've got, to bring back fruit, to do all the things, and they've done it. I mean, these are the Israelites. These people have, have complained. They have messed up. They have made mistake after mistake after mistake. But here, if we're keeping score at home, they did everything the way they were supposed to do it. It feels good. It's a story that when we look at it, we're like, yes, you got it. Again, that reference to a land flowing with milk and honey, this references the promised land deliverance, God providing for them. But it's here I, I want to switch gears for just a little bit and take you back to 1962. I was not present, but in 1962, there was a record label called DECA, D-E-C-C-A. Does anyone remember this particular record label? You do. Excellent. So we've got a few people that remember this record label. Most of you do not remember it because they made a really bad decision in 1962. They called these people, this next slide, idiots. This is a true story. They looked at these four handsome British men and said, no, thank you. In 1962, DECA was one of the biggest names in the recording industry. On January 1st 
1962, an aspiring group of musicians from Liverpool auditioned, but Decca was not impressed. They heard these guys sing, they heard what they had to offer, and they said, no, we are good. And the reason in history that they gave as to why they were not impressed and that they thought these guys would never make it, which is a direct quote from them, was that guitar bands had had their day. And they thought, quote, this bunch of scruffy misfits weren't going to change that anytime soon. Just think about that for just a second. These guys, these recording, this, recording, this recording company looked at these kids and said, there's no way you're going to make it, and we're going to say no. There's, and, and when you look at this story, that they couldn't even spell their names right. When the Beatles kept saying, we're the Beatles, they would write B-E-E-T-L-E-S. They would misspell their name in all the correspondence. And that group that went on was obviously the Beatles. They went on to conquer the world of music and actually signed with a much smaller label at the time, E-M-I, who gave this soon-to-be Fab Four a chance. And the story goes, they sat back and watched the money roll in. And when you look at stories of people saying no, there are countless stories. You can go to all the stories of the early days of Apple, of the individuals that told Steve Jobs, no, thank you, it's never going to matter, you're never going to be able to do it. Uh, There's actually another story that I saw about when uh, the light bulb was coming in, in Great Britain. They were like, we're good, we don't want this. And they were like, are you sure? They said no too. There are countless stories of individuals saying no to things over and over and over again. But I thought that the Beatle one was fantastic. Because before the Beatles even came to that record label, those individuals already had their mind made up. Before they even stepped foot, played a sound on their guitar, they had already said no. And again, if we were to go back to verses 26 and 27, they gave Moses this account, we went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But any time that you hear something like that, you know that a no or a but is coming. And in verse 28, they continue on and they say, but... The people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Have you ever been in those situations where you're trying to give every single reason not to go to something? I mean, that's what these guys wrote this down. They did their homework. They were like, look, we've got these awesome grapes. Land is flown with milk and honey. But we've got to make sure that nobody wants to go into this land. You will always, always find reasons to tell God no. Maybe it's not the right time. Maybe you're not prepared enough. You're not equipped enough. Maybe the people that God is wanting you to to interact with are larger than life, and you're like, God, I don't compare to these individuals. I, I don't match up to them. You will always find reasons to tell God no. And that's what these 10 individuals are doing, is they are giving Moses every excuse in the book to say, we shouldn't even touch this. Yeah, we brought you back these pomegranates, these figs, these grapes. Everything was great, Moses. But there is no way that we should enter into this land. And if we're, we're not reading ahead, if we're just looking at this part of the story, 
there is this defeated mindset. I'm like, well, okay. We tried. We did our best. We went for 40 days. We, we surveyed the land. We did all the things that Moses told us to do, but we'll go, we're going back to camp, right, guys? But that's where Caleb comes into the story. So there's this old VBS song that, that went that 12 spies went to Canaan, 10 were bad, two were good. Well, I did it wrong, but okay, nobody in class in this song either. Okay, it's a fun song. I'll teach it to you later. But we know this, right? That Caleb and Joshua, they're the only two individuals that when they go into Canaan, they say, yes, God can do this. Not that no, we cannot. No, we're not big enough. We're not strong enough. We're not prepared enough. That's not even in their wheelhouse. Caleb and Joshua look at this and they say, God has given us this land. God has commanded us to go into this. And so Caleb in verse 30, this says, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. You're getting this like roller coaster of emotion in the story. It goes back and forth. Because a, a verse ahead, you're looking at this and you're like, well, they've given up. But if you go a little bit further back, it's like, wow, we found all of these amazing things and God is delivering and God is providing for these people. But Caleb steps up and said, God has given us this moment, this opportunity. I talk a lot about when God pulls on your heartstrings. When you feel like God is really leading you into a moment. When you feel that pull on your heart, it's not so that God will say like, okay, now give me all of your excuses as to why you won't do this thing for me. God is pulling you in directions so that you will take advantage of what God is providing and delivering for you. And Caleb recognizes this. Caleb says, we were not walking through this land for 40 days just so we could come back and say no. God was preparing us and equipping us for what is ahead. And when God has put something in front of Caleb, Caleb says, we should go and take possession of the land. But the men who had gone up with him in verse 31 said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they do the smartest thing when you want to get your way. They start telling everybody else. They start spreading the news that these, these descendants, these, Phil, these pre-Philistines are in this, the Anakites, I couldn't remember the names, uh, the Anakites, they're in this land, they're too big, they're larger than us. They start telling everyone who has an ear, this is bad. Moses is about to make us do something that will destroy us. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. Think about that for a second. A few verses ago, we had just learned that the land was flowing with milk and honey. These men had actually brought back clusters of grapes so large that two men had to carry them. And yet they're like, you know, the grapes really weren't that big, right? The grapes really weren't that big. It was actually, you know, the stick was bigger than the grapes. Like, we don't really want to look at the grapes. The Israelites, a bad report about the land they explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. Verse 33, we saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And the story continues in Numbers 14. It's that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, 
If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. It's one of the most striking lines in this story. And it shows you how fear and saying no can overcome you. When you are looking for excuses, when you are looking for reasons not to do what God has commanded and put on your heart to do, it's so easy to get to this place where they're like, we would rather be enslaved. We would rather be with the Egyptians or just wandering around in the wilderness than on the precipice of being in the promised land that God has given us, that God has prepared us for, equipped us with. But they have allowed their fear and their ability to say no to get to this point to where they say, if we had only died in Egypt. So why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now we like to tell this story a lot to kids because it's fun. These individuals, they go into the promised land. They explore. They see these huge grapes, pomegranates, figs. They come back and they're like, Moses, this place was great. But no. And often when we tell this story to children, one of the things that we omit is this part. Where instead of seeing that God has delivered and provided for them, all they want is to go back into slavery. All they want to do is go back into wandering around the desert with no direction, with no purpose, hoping for one day to find the promised land. Friends, the reason why this is a story for grown-ups is because a lot of us make excuses, myself included, of reasons why I don't want to do something or why I don't feel like God has really called me into this moment, I look for those excuses from time to time just so I can get out of doing something that I know that God has called me to do. It's a fun story for kids, but it's really an adult story that reminds us that when God has provided for us, when God has put something in front of us, what we're supposed to do is not make excuses. We're not supposed to look behind us and say, you know what, the past really feels a lot better. We're supposed to trust that God is leading us into something new, into something better. But we will only do that if we are like Caleb and Joshua. If we are willing to, say, to realize that God will prepare us. That God will protect us. Even in these moments where we look, look in front of us and say, Man, God, I don't know how we're going to get from point A to point B. But God, I'm going to trust you. God, as I look ahead, I know that these people, they look like they're bigger than me, God. They, they look like people that I can't defeat. But God, I'm going to trust that you're going to provide a way. So as adults, that's what we need to hear. Is that God will provide a way. And we need to be people who say, yes, God, versus give God a laundry list of excuses. Let's stand and sing together.